Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. I believe that people generally act in line with their character as opposed to acting out of character. To put it another way, I believe that for most people, most of the time, our actions flow from who we really understand ourselves to be. Therefore, it's important that we really know who we are as individuals. That's true of individuals. I think it is also true of churches. Churches tend to act according to who they understand themselves to be. So, if a spirit of pride comes to characterize the way that a church thinks about itself, then it and its people tend to get pretty judgmental toward one another and toward outsiders. But if a spirit of humility comes to grip a church, then it becomes a place that is characterized by loving acceptance toward one another and toward the communities beyond us. But it's also the case then that if a church doesn't know who it really is, it has some big questions to answer. If we don't know who we are, then how do we know how to live toward one another and toward the world around us? Two questions, who are we and what are we supposed to be doing are flip sides of the same coin. First Naz is part of a denomination called the International Church of the Nazarene. And the Church of the Nazarene has identified itself as having three core values that define us. Today and over the next couple of weeks, I want to help us all to understand who we are as a people. Now, it is the case that First Naz will have some distinguishing marks that make it different than all other churches in the world and all other Nazarene churches, but those are not the things that we are going to focus upon. We're going to focus upon the things that we have in common with the Church of Jesus Christ as a whole and that we have in common with the other Christians who call themselves Nazarenes as well. Now, I have to, to just stop right here for a moment and make, I'm going to say something, you can believe it or not, but here's the truth. I am glad to be a part of the Church of the Nazarene. I say that without apology. I am part of a denomination. I am a denominational minister. I say it without apology. But I will also say without apology, I am Christian first and whatever else second. Okay, got to know where we stand here. When, when I look at Cliff Purcell, I know who this guy is. Nazarene without apology but Christian first, and anything else that's second is a really distant second. Because I believe this, the church of Jesus Christ will exist forever and ever and ever. Therefore, yeah, that's, that's praiseworthy. I want to be a part of that. If for some reason the denomination were to dry up and blow away, the kingdom would still exist. The church of Jesus Christ would still be on the march and some poor church somewhere would get stuck with me as their pastor. So I'm Nazarene for, uh, second, I'm Christian first. I saved that before I got that whole, that whole word out. I'm, I'm Christian first, I'm Nazarene um, a distant second, but without apology. Now, as, as I stated, I'm, I'm taking us somewhere over the course of the next, uh, next few weeks. Um, 
We'll have some things that we have in common with other churches. We'll have some things that distinguish us from other churches. But right in our name is a world that helps us to understand who we are and where our place is among all the teeming religions of this world. The truth be told, there are two reasons that I want to share this series of lessons with you. The first is what I've already said. I think that a solid understanding of who we are will shape our actions toward one another and toward the communities around us here in the LC. But the second reason is this, because I think it's important for me as pastor to equip you to be able to give a meaningful answer to anyone who wants to know a little bit about our church and why it is that they might want to attend this one. So let's take a look at our identity as part of a denomination. And if you have problems with denominationalism, just know I do too, but I also have problems with floating around out there all by ourselves in this world, and somehow I've wrestled one of those two things to the dirt. For me, I was able to wrestle the denomination thing to the dirt, okay? Um, If you don't like the denominational thing, I understand that, but we're part of a denomination, okay? So that's where we're going to work from. Um, So our three core values, the things that really sum up who we are, define our, our, our personhood, our churchhood, and therefore determine the way we act toward one another within this congregation and how this congregation embraces the community beyond it. Those three core values are stated this way. The Church of the Nazarene is a Christian church, It is a holiness church, and it is a missional church. Why don't you just read that with me? The Church of the Nazarene is a Christian church, a holiness church, and a missional church. I'm not going to, there's not going to be a test. I'm not going to ask you to memorize that. I don't think it would be a bad idea because it might help you as we go through these next few weeks to come to understand who we are and how then to talk to your friends about your faith. Let's start with the first and definitely most important core value, and it's this. We're Christian. So the question this morning really is, what does it mean to be Christian? And as soon as you ask that question, it is a great big honking answer if you are going to try to fill in the blanks all the questions that people have about Christianity. If you use that term in the broadest sense, We just don't have time to cover all of it. So we're going to narrow this thing down, this idea of of being Christian, to its most biblical essence. Who did Jesus and his first followers understand the church to be? If you just try to to gather all the, the teachings of Jesus and his apostles and use that as your answer, the book is exactly the size of our New Testament. Hmm, right? The teachings of Jesus and all of the apostles. So we're going to boil it down just a, a little bit beyond that. The, um, because, you know, have, telling people, well, just read the New Testament. We're a New Testament church. That really doesn't help anybody understand who we are. But the apostle Paul, the guy who wrote hmm, half or better of the New Testament, he boiled that term Christian down to a bite-sized chunk that absolutely all of us can get some handles on. Let's see what he said. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Lord, whenever we come to this book, we embrace it like it's different. We embrace it like this thing has keys to a new kind of life. We embrace this this book and give it authority over us. We let it shape how we think, what we believe, and how we will then live. We just want you to know as we come to the book one more time this morning, we're really coming to your feet 
And as we said, we surrender to you. So take your word. Put it in our hearts like the prophet Jeremiah said you would. Write it on our minds this morning. Just turn on the lights for us, we pray. In your name, amen. 1 Corinthians is where I'm reading from, chapter 15, there toward the end of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll begin reading with verse 1, and I didn't write it down, but I think I'm reading from the New International Version this morning. Paul uh, has been writing a letter to a very difficult church, a church that, was, uh, that lacked self-discipline, a church that wasn't being very faithful to the things that it had been taught about Jesus and how to live and reflect him in the world around us. And Paul had worn them out pretty good by the time he gets to, to chapter 15. And so he gets to the end of this letter and he says these words. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Paul's corrected this church. He said, listen, you, you've forgotten the things that I taught you in the beginning and you've forgotten who you are and because of that, you are acting like a completely different group of people than the ones that I knew. He gets to the end of the book and he says, let me remind you of this gospel. It's the, one of the last things I'm going to say to you before I end this letter and knowing how things were going for Christians in the early first century, there was a good chance this would be the last thing that they ever heard from him and he wanted to make sure that he, he shaped their identity, their understanding of who they are as followers of Jesus Christ and so he said the following things. He says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Hang on to that, that phrase. It's very, very important. What I received, I handed off to you as of first importance. Let's work with that idea of what he received first. Doesn't that beg a question? If Paul says, well, what I received, I gave to you. There's a question for me. What you received from whom, Paul? I want to know where this source material comes from. Because if you're not claiming this to be an original thought, you're believing somebody else. And who is that somebody else? Paul goes on at great length in his other writings in the New Testament to deal with this very issue. Paul said, look, I'm going to make an outlandish claim and there are some reputable people that back me up, but though I was not one of Jesus' 12 chosen original followers, I have the authority of Jesus Christ as one of the few leaders in his church. I am an apostle. It's a word that means sent ones, ones who were given the mantle of authority and sent out there to establish the kingdom here on the earth. Paul said, I'm an apostle. And people started arguing against him, saying, now wait just a minute, Paul. 
You weren't one of Jesus' original 12, and we think that maybe it was just the, the original 12. Besides, you, you were kind of a young pup whenever, whenever Jesus was crucified to begin with, so we're not real sure because of your age that we really want to elevate you to that place and give you authority in Christ's church. And that's when Paul explained a story. He said, well, you remember that I used to be the guy who killed Christians and I persecuted the church intently and then God blew me off the back of my horse. There were other people there with me. We were going to arrest some Christians in Damascus and that didn't work out because, you know, the blind guy isn't the best fighter in the world. And so um, I couldn't go and and, uh, drag these guys to their death. And besides, God had gotten a hold of my heart and changed me. I went from being the person who persecuted the church to the person who is a part of the church and willing to put my life on the line. And the book of Acts tells us about the beginnings of Paul's ministry, but it has some some gaps in the story too. And so between Acts and Paul's other writings, we fill in the gaps and, and Paul makes this claim that after a while, he realized I've got to get out of the, the, the rush that came right after my conversion because I've presented myself in such a way that I'm an easy target and the whole world is gunning for me. And and Paul was kind of uh, public enemy number one. He disappeared. Paul makes the claim that he went into the desert for an extended period of time to just get away with the Spirit of God and that while he was there, Jesus himself appeared to him and taught him the gospel like he taught the disciples back when he walked with them physically on the planet. Paul says, yeah, but later I came into town, I went into Jerusalem, I found James and the other apostles that were still living, and I preached the gospel that I had learned from Jesus in the desert to the apostles, and they said, yep, same one. You, you, you must have somehow gotten it right, you and God out there in the desert. And Paul then, with the authority of the other apostles, went out as an apostle, and began to teach these things. Who'd you receive your gospel from, Paul? He said, I received it from Jesus himself, and it's been verified by James and John and the other guys. He said, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This phrase has grabbed a hold of me for basically all of my life as a pastor. See, the Bible's big. Who's got, a, who's got a print version of the Bible with them here today instead of the phone version? Can you just hold it up? I mean, it's a big book. Look at this. It can stand up for me. People forget what Bibles look like because they have smartphones. See this thing? It's ginormous. Try it. Thank you very much, Ken. I thought it was my job as a pastor to understand all of it. Man, there's words in there I can't even pronounce. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's that. And it's, it's lengthy. And it's written by lots of different people from a handful of different cultures over a very, very lengthy period of time, well over a thousand years. None of those cultures was mine by birth. Everything I'm reading is in second language and second culture. It's kind of a tough and daunting task to think that I am going to completely absorb that entire book, digest it well enough that I can then piecemeal it out to you all so that your lives can be happy in Christ. Then I discovered this passage 
and it set me free. I study hard every week. I, I spend a lot of time in the Old Testament to, to understand the foundations that, that Jesus tried to build upon. But this is the phrase that set me free because it helped me understand that not everything in there is of equal importance. It's all important, but Paul said, listen, I've learned all kinds of things from Christ, but the things that were of first importance, I now pass on to you. You ever been in one of those conversations where somebody is just spewing out tons of information and you're just feeling like completely overwhelmed? I mean, like trying to get a sip out of a fire hydrant. <laughs> you, may, you may get a little bit of a drink and it may be refreshing, but it might rip your lips off too. You know, you've been in one of those conversations where you just want to say, stop, boil it down to one sentence for me. What do you got? This happens fairly regularly with our youngest son. Luke's a great kid. I love him. Part of the reason I think I love him so much is it's spooky how much he's like me, um, which I tell him makes him cute now, but does not bode well for his future. Um, Luke's that, he's a detail guy. And so he'll come home and say, Dad! <gasps> and I'll just sit there in the stream of it for a while, and then I'll say, Hey, Luke, what's the point? Oh. Or he'll say, when he sees the glazed look on my face, Hey, Dad, short version or long version? I'll take the short version, Luke. Okay, yeah. Would you like the short version of the sermon this morning? Everybody would. Yeah, so get there, Cliff. Um, I love this passage because it tells me there's a short version. Instead of this ginormous book, there's a short version. The most important things, Paul said, I'll just lay them out right here on the table, grab a hold of these, and you will have the essence of what it means to be Christian. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now understand what this means. It means that when I, when I present to you the most important things, it's not the only things, and it's not the only important things. And if you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, become content with the bare minimums, well, I guess okay. Go ahead and live a bare and minimal kind of existence. Let me know how that goes for you. You see, there's more in this book and it is important and wonderful and powerful and good and it behooves every one of us to dig into it. But I want you to know this. If you get this part that I share with you in the next few minutes, you can be a follower of Jesus Christ and enjoy all the benefits of salvation that has been made available to dirty, rotten human beings by a great, big, holy, wonderful God. Okay? So they're first things, not only things. Right? Still, they are first things. Here's what he said. The most important things, Paul said, boil down to these essentials. Number one, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Two things there that are very important. Christ died for our sins. If you were here last week on Easter, on Resurrection Day, we talked about the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and its meaning. And we learned that Jesus didn't just die. Jesus died for a reason. It was part of a plan and it was to achieve a purpose. And the purpose was that you and I might be forgiven of all of the wrong that we have ever done. But when Paul wrote these words. He didn't just say that Christ died for our sins. He said that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And to his audience, they went, oh, wait a minute. That means that this was predicted in the past. Old Testament prophets had communicated on behalf of God with a, a people who had been very stubbornly rebellious and disobedient. God's message through the prophets to these people was that their rebellion had gone to the place where he now must 
punish them. You read the Old Testament prophets, they all sound the same. It's a prophet coming and saying, hey, quit acting like that. On behalf of God, I'm here to tell you, quit acting like that or else I might have to punish you. The prophet will repeat the message. God said, quit acting like that or I'm going to have to punish you. But you get to the end of virtually every prophetic book in the Old Testament and there comes a point where the prophet says, God sent a new message that even if you quit now, you will be punished so that you and those around you may learn not to disobey. The Old Testament prophets are who Paul was referring to when he said Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The New Testament writings also tell of the coming of that substitute that the Old Testament prophets had promised. And you know who the substitute is. It's Jesus. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus lived like every human being ought to, but he accepted punishment as though he had lived like every human really does. Did you get that? I'm going to say it again because it's important. Jesus lived like every human being ought to, but he died as though he had lived like every human being really does. So we see in this statement that Paul makes that one of the essentials of the Christian faith is a belief in a concept found both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Christ died for our sins. Yeah. Paul says, I'm talking about first things, most important things, essential things of the Christian faith. Number one, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Number two, that he was buried. And in my notes, I've got in parentheses according to the scriptures because I won't bore you with all the details, but in the original language in which this letter was written in, in Koine Greek, there's this weird sentence structure so that the th- all the things that Paul is connecting together, you can't exactly tell where the phrase according to the scriptures attaches. It's kind of fluid and moves through the text as though every statement is followed by according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. So we get to this phrase, he died for our sins according to the scriptures, also that he was buried by implication according to the scriptures. Very important. Burial indicates death. You might put it this way. In one sense, burial guarantees death because you're either dead when they bury you or shortly thereafter, right? So when the Apostle Paul is presenting the gospel, he says, here's the things you have to know. Christ died for a purpose. He he died for our sins. He really died. He was buried. Why would he mention the burial? It's because people were circulating the rumors that Jesus never really, his body never was put in the tomb. We talked about that last week, didn't we? About the guard set over the tomb and so forth. He says, no, he, he really died. He died for a purpose. And he was buried. That much has been verified. He wanted to reinforce the death of Jesus, but he also wanted to assert that the followers of Jesus had not pulled a fast one. They had just been crushed under the weight of what had happened. And they watched, a few of them participated in the burial of our Lord. Paul said, you've got to understand the most important things about Christianity. Number one, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Number two, that he was buried according to the scriptures. And number three, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Rome and Jerusalem had a problem on their hands. There was an empty tomb. What you gonna do with that? 
kill somebody else, throw their corpse in there, people can usually tell their dead friends and relatives. It's not going to work. So Rome and Jerusalem chose to handle it with a campaign of misinformation. But the Old Testament had prophesied this idea that Jesus would come back from the dead. And what had been prophesied 800 years before then came to pass. Jesus was raised from the dead. His death had been actual. His resurrection had been actual as well. Paul says make sure you understand that because it's one of the very most important things, one of the essentials of Christianity. Got to get a hold of the death and its purpose. Got to get a hold of the resurrection and you got to get a hold of the proof of the resurrection. It's the next thing that he talks about. He says, oh yeah, by the way, after his death and after his supposed resurrection, he showed up. He started appearing to people. Paul's final essential of the Christian faith is a list like a catalog of post-resurrection appearances by Jesus. He listed individuals, he listed them by name, he listed small groups, and he listed crowds of hundreds. There'd been many convincing proofs that Jesus was dead, spear, release of the body, burial, guarded tomb. And now, Paul had given many convincing proofs that Jesus was alive. Did you get that? Many convincing proofs of his death followed by many convincing proofs that he was alive. And then Paul even goes so far as to invite the skeptic of his day to check out the story. He says, by the way, some of the witnesses are still alive. I listed their names. Go look them up. Surely you can find somebody in your circle of friends who was there that day when Jesus showed up in front of a crowd of 500 people. That's kind of an interesting claim, isn't it? That he appeared to this guy and that guy in secret. But he shows up in front of a group of 500. He, I guess it's a public appearance. But get this. Those kind of things are kind of hard to fake. Because trying to keep 500 co-conspirators on the same page and to never crack over the course of about three decades before this was written. Really? You're going to get 500 people to tell the same version of the same lie for 30 straight years? No way. Jeremy makes a living off of people not being able to tell the same story for two days in a row. Right? It's a convincing proof that Jesus is alive. Paul says, I'm talking to you about the essentials of the faith. The things that are of first importance. The rest of them, I suppose you can let go of them. There's some, there's some wealth and some goodness for you there. But grab a hold of these. Hang on to them because they define who we are as the followers, the church of Jesus Christ. He said, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, not stolen. He was raised on the third day. And after that, he appeared to many. You get this. Christ didn't disappear. He appeared to many. Very important. His body didn't disappear. His body finally started showing up again and again and again and again and again and again. These are the minimal belief requirements of the Christian faith, according to Paul. Let's wrestle with that for a minute. Well, pastor, what about the virgin birth? You have to believe in that. Well, I, I do. I think it's important. Paul said, I'm talking about first importance. Did he say Paul doesn't believe in the virgin birth? No. Did he say it's not important? No, he didn't say that. 
He just said, if you want to know the essentials, Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, Christ rose again, and he proved it. Okay, well, what about the the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ? He was 100% both, Pastor. Don't you have to believe in that? I think it's important. I, I think it makes a huge difference if you, if you trace the, the, the opposite of those ideas out to their conclusion. You'll end up with a weird Jesus and you'll end up serving him in weird ways. But the Apostle Paul said, I'm talking to you about the very most important things. And the argument of how much God and how much man didn't make the cut. Well, what about, what about modes of baptism, Pastor? It didn't make the cut. Worship style... Didn't make the cut. What else do you want to talk about? Because none of it made the cut. See, the thing that unifies the church of Jesus Christ, there's all kinds of things where we disagree. Come on, we're human beings. But the things that unify us, man, we're rock solid on these three, four. They die. <laughs> yeah, rock solid. Boy, kind of blew that point. <laughs> Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Really was buried. Nobody pulled the fast one. He rose from the dead and proved it by appearing to many people. This is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe those things here. At first and as we believe those things. We're never not going to believe them. We may, we may wrestle one another over some other issues, but not on these. We stand arm in arm, hand in hand. Here we stand on this solid foundation, the essence of the gospel. When Paul said, boil her down and keep boiling her down, you can't boil it down past this. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead, and he proved it. The gospel is true. The gospel is real. And he said, he'll save you if you hold on to it you get that? It will save you if you hold on to it. There are going to be some times when you grab a hold of it and start to lose your grip on it. He says, hang on! It'll save you if you hold on to it. Not going to ask you to raise your hand, but anybody's grip slipping a little bit today? Struggle a little bit with some doubt? He says, listen, hold on to this thing. It will save you. So I'm telling you today, if you feel a little squishy about the gospel, at least get a firm grip and hold on until the squishy part of you firms up again because this gospel will save you. The Church of the Nazarene believes these things. And because of it, we find ourselves well within the bounds of historic Christianity. That's very important. The Church of the Nazarene is not like some other faith groups who see themselves as somehow existing outside the stream of historic Christianity because it's all messed up, you know. And they, from their position of perfect perspective, look at the historic stream of Christianity and make all these criticisms against it. That's not who we are. We don't see ourselves as a, a living critique of historic Christianity. We see ourselves as a part of it, warts and all mistakes and scars and all the church is us we see ourselves as a denomination that is committed to and submitted to these essential beliefs and we uh, we see ourselves as only one small part of christ's church 
Listen to me. You've got to get this. We are not the only legitimate church. I won't even make the claim that we're the best church. We are only one part, one small part of the one true church of Jesus Christ, which includes Christ followers from many different Christian organizations and some from no organization at all. In making the statement that the Church of the Nazarene is a Christian church, we're aligning ourselves first and foremost with Jesus Christ. If everybody else turns away, we are going to stay latched on to Jesus Christ. We are admitting our faith in him. We are admitting our total acceptance of the things that he claimed about himself. As a Christian church, we accept Jesus' authority over us in matters related to the organized church and also in matters related to our personal lives, right? Nod your heads like this. What's more, we state with humility and with gratitude that we count it a privilege to be considered a part of that great stream of Christian faith down through the ages. Listen, the church doesn't have a perfect past. Its failures grieve us. But the Christian church is the bride of Christ. The Bible says so. So we embrace her and we call her beautiful. To be part of a Christian church means that we cast our lot with those people who have sacrificed and suffered and served and died in the interest of proclaiming the Jesus message and of seeing his kingdom established here on the earth. We submit ourselves to Jesus' headship, but then we embrace all the other Christians, all the other denominations and the non-denominations who are a part of the church of Jesus Christ, the one true church. Paul wrote, By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, and he proved it by appearing to many. It's the most basic confession of Christianity, and it is on these statements of faith that we take our stand. It's the first and most important part of our identity as the Church of the Nazarene. Last week, we, we considered the fact that these scriptures tell us that the events that Paul listed as the essentials of the faith, they have meaning. It's important that we remember that. Jesus' death wasn't an unfortunate early end to his ministry. No, he laid down his life for the human race. And in Romans 6, Paul tells us that his death and resurrection have meaning. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He says, no way. And from there he explains Jesus' death and resurrection mean that we can be forgiven and we can have a new kind of life. I'm going to leave you hanging here. What kind of life? We'll talk about that next week. Core value number two. As we conclude today, perhaps you don't consider yourself to be a Nazarene. Let it be said out loud, you are still welcome here because this church does not belong to us. 
It belongs to Jesus Christ. And he throws his arms open wide to everybody and anybody, including people like us. If you're not a Nazarene, we're glad you're here. Know this, as long as I'm the pastor here, there will be no second-class citizens, okay? Yes, we have formal membership that helps us do things like elect a pastor or other lay leaders, but uh, there's no second-class citizens around here. Maybe it's not the Nazarene thing that you object to. Maybe it's, maybe it's the title Christian because that word has been, uh, well, let's just say it has some abuses associated with it down through time. I understand that. And it's why I often use the phrase Christ follower instead of Christian because I think it kind of gets to the point. But if you have problems with the denomination and you have problems with the church historically, okay, but this morning I've offered an explanation of the Christian faith in its purest and simplest form. And then I invite you to consider the gospel on its own merits rather than on the merits of the worst Christians that you know. But even at that, it's a big stretch, isn't it? To believe that some guy who lived 2,000 years ago was actually a god, actually performed miracles, actually raised other people from the dead. His death actually makes it possible for us to be forgiven. And then he came back from the dead. And that means we're supposed to have, we get to live a new kind of life. It's kind of a big stretch. Once you get past the denominationalism, once you get past the word Christian, the ideas are a big enough stretch. I get that. That, that stretch for you across the gap of absolute proof there's a word for that. That stretch is called faith. And this morning, I want to offer you the opportunity to take the, the stretch that is called faith and to become a Christian, a Christ follower, a Christian. And over the next two weeks, I'll explain further what it means to be a Nazarene Christian. But the bottom line is this. Knowing who we are shapes, determines how we live toward one another and toward our community. And the Church of the Nazarene is a Christian church. It means that we invite you to join us as followers of Jesus Christ. We want you in our social circle, absolutely. We want you to, to work with us as we do projects around the community to alleviate the suffering of those who are less fortunate than us. Yes, absolutely. You can, you can work with us in those things if you don't share our faith. But listen, the reason that we do this is because we want you to share our faith. We want you to, to gain the benefits of knowing and believing that your sins have been forgiven and of experiencing the change that only you can know is really real, where he's changing your heart and your mind and turning you inside out in the most magnificent way. When we proclaim that we are a Christian church, we are extending an offer to anyone who will listen to us to stretch with us and receive the benefits of forgiveness and new life in connection with God. So this morning... As we close the service, would you stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes?
a person might make the claim that I preached this sermon last week and virtually every week since I've been your pastor and uh, again without apology because Christianity is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus and it's all about helping people connect with God through faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and I want to just ask a question of the crowd this morning. I know many of you have believed this message for years. You've accepted it by faith and you are experiencing that business of being remade from the inside out. But I wonder if there's anybody here today who for the very first time says, I'm taking the flying leap of faith. I'm going to bet the farm. I'm going to bet this life and any next one that there might be that there is a God and that he's like Jesus. I'm going to bet that I really can be forgiven and I'm going to bet that I can be remade. I'm sticking my neck out there today. I'm a Christ follower. I want to be a Christian. Today, if you're deciding that for the first time, would you just put your hand up in the air? I'm not going to drag you out here. I just want, all right. I just want to be able to pray for you. That the Lord, I see your hand. Good. That the Lord just does for you what he has done for many of us in this room. Give us peace that comes from knowing that we've been forgiven. Wipes away the guilt and shame from our past and makes us, over time, what he dreamed we would be when he dreamed us up a long time ago. One, one last offer. Anybody else today? Yeah, man, I'm, I'm making, all right, fantastic. Yeah. Lord, bowed in your presence, I am awestruck one more time how you take this crazy story that is so true, and you make it believable, to people who will open their hearts just a little bit. Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins, for the sins of my friends in this room here today. Heavenly Father, thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. After he'd been dead long enough to prove that, you raised him from the dead and gave him a new kind of life that never, ever ends that he has promised to share with us praise your holy name for that. And I'm so grateful. I pray that this new life can come along with that big stretch of faith for those who raised their hands today. Lord, thank you for this church. It's not perfect, but it belongs to you. Therefore, we want to honor it. We want to cherish it like you do. We want to treat it with respect and dignity. And we want to show her beauty to the world around us. Would you help us, Lord, to be believable envoys of the church of Jesus Christ? As people look at the church, they can see bad things in the past. We pray that the church that's here during our lifetimes would be one that makes the gospel believable. So continue to transform us, individuals, and this church that we make up. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Hey, listen, if you, um, if you raised your hand today, there's a, uh, a gift for you out on the connection desk. If you just go out into the foyer and take a left, there's a... Uh, they're New Believers Bibles with just a handful of things tucked in there that will help you get started well on this faith journey. And we want you to know that uh, the helps that you need along the way, the questions that you need answered, um, you don't have to call the church office. 
You can grab anyone around here and they will help you take the next steps forward in the faith. Listen, we're followers of Jesus Christ. Everything else is secondary. Go today resting in this one fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that makes all the difference. And fact number two, that he is risen from the dead. New life for you and me. So may you know his peace. Amen.